No matter where your business is in Canada, connectivity shouldn't be a concern. Whether your business is rural, remote, or urban, reliable, scalable internet is available to you and your business. Explore Business is expanding our network. With our extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're able to bring you the connectivity your business deserves, with the ability to grow right where you are. With investments in fiber and 5G technology, Explore Business is your new choice for business internet. Get connected with Explore Business today. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, we'll speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. We'll examine issues, solutions, and hope outside of the city limits. Clearing a New Path podcast is an invitation to listen and learn along with me on the road to building a more united, feminist, anti-racist rural Canada, one rooted in diversity and driven by reconciliation. Let's learn together, clearing a new path. start by saying 2SLGBTQIA+, is an acronym for Two-Spirit, Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Queer and or Questioning, Intersex, Asexual, and the plus reflects the countless affirmative ways in which people choose to self-identify. Canada's large urban centers have long been supportive and embrace members of the 2SLGBTQAI plus community, recognizing they are an integral and important part of any diverse community. However, rural communities tend to lag behind in this area. Many small communities are experiencing intolerance and hatred, sometimes in the form of a protest outside a drag story time at a local library, for example, or a more aggressive burning of a pride or trans flag. Support of queer and trans folks in rural Canada is the work of allies, but many step forward from the community itself to make a safe space and community for others. Dr. Kay Dingwell is an emergency care physician in PEI, and she also happens to have a specialty in gender-affirming care. The World Health Organization defines gender-affirming care as a range of social, psychological, behavioral, and medical interventions designed to support and affirm an individual's gender identity when it conflicts with the gender they were assigned at birth. Treatments range from laser hair removal male or female hormone therapy, chest or breast 
otherwise known as top surgery, bottom surgery, which can transform and or rebuild genitals and other healthcare treatments. Kayla Grant is running in the upcoming Woolwich, Ontario municipal election. She has self-identified as queer. The current council, while reviewing a citizen letter about installing a rainbow crosswalk, a counselor said he wouldn't be supporting it because he didn't support the quote lifestyle. Another counselor corrected him, but he went ahead and referred to 2S LGBTQAI plus folks as living a quote lifestyle and was corrected again. Both women joined me to talk about supporting queer and trans folks in rural Canadian communities. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I have Dr. Kay Dingwell, who is in PEI and was just telling us about the remnants of the hurricane there. And Kayla Grant is in Woolwich, Ontario, and is a candidate in the upcoming municipal election. Thank you again. It's uh, a pleasure to speak to you both. Dr. Dingwell, I'm going to ask you, why did you choose to have a particular interest in gender-affirming care and moving to PEI? PEI has been home to my family for quite a while. It's also, it's known as Abagwe, so on their traditional territory of Mi'kma'ki. And so I, I always want to acknowledge that this is unceded territory, and so this is a Mi'kmaq people's territory. I have always had an, an interest. I'm, I'm a member of the queer community myself. I have an interest in ensuring that there is care provided to this community. I have had trans friends since adolescence, and I was aware of how difficult it was to access any care at all, let alone care for affirmation. So healthcare can be a very unsafe place for trans people, continues to be so. But I was very fortunate during my, my medical education to receive training just right integrated into my training was information on gender affirming care, on providing safe spaces to, to SLGBTQ people. And so that was really just part of how I grew up as a doctor. Um, part of my residency training also, like we, we got information as just part of our core family medicine training on hormone prescribing. And I had the opportunity to do Rainbow Health Ontario's uh, primary care hormone prescribing course paid for by McMaster. And I, I took that, I wanted to do it. And I knew coming back to PEI um, that at the time I made the plans to come home, there was no gender affirming care clinic. Uh, there was a pilot just getting started at the time I came home, and um, I was fortunate through the the trans network kind of getting connected with me that I got involved with this clinic, and I've been uh, happily involved since. Uh, I am on a bit of a hiatus from doing in-person clinic, but I'm I'm kind of continuing to quarterback staff and and do my post ops at at uh, the hospital. So I still very much enjoy being involved, and uh, looking forward to hopefully getting back into in-person clinics as soon as I can. Why do you think gender affirming care isn't more widely practiced in, I would say, many pockets of rural Canada? Collection of issues. I think gender affirming care isn't uh, more widely practiced due, in general just due to the fact that people have a perception that it's hard. Um, and it's really not. It's no more complex than any other 
primary care that is provided. I'm trained as a family physician, and although my full-time job is as an eMERGE doc, uh, I do do a bit of primary care through this way. It, it really is no more complicated than managing any of the other sorts of diseases that we manage, like diabetes, like atrial fibrillation, like hypertension, those sorts of things. Um, but people have the perception that there's a really steep learning curve, that it's complicated to do, um, that it will take them a ton of time. And family doctors are really pressed for time, especially rural family doctors. There also remain, and, and we got to name it, there's a lot of bigotry out there against trans people. And that is absolutely true in medicine as well. And so there can be social pushback against doctors who do provide this care. And that is something that has to be named and has to be called out because it does happen. And doctors do sometimes face threats or pushback or college complaints for providing this care. And so that can be something that's very off-putting because to provide it is to take a stand saying, I think trans people deserve healthcare and that I think they deserve safe spaces. And that unfortunately is still treated as a controversial position, which it really shouldn't be. All my patients deserve to be safe. The rural doctor or rural physician is the the center of wellness for a lot of people and for rural physicians not to be trained or choose not to provide gender affirming care results in a lot of angst, anxiety for young people. In Ontario, we have uh, a group uh, called the rural Ontario community of queer uh, folks, and they talk about suicides, um, you know, youth suicide rates. And I don't think people understand how critical it is to recognize and validate young people in who they are. How do you feel about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. It is well established that gender affirming care is a life-saving intervention. So, the trans community, not due to mental illness in the trans community, but due to the amount of stigma and non-acceptance that this community faces, have a very high incidence of suicide and suicide attempts. And to provide care where we are helping these patients embody who they are, um, we are helping them exist in the world in a way that is safer for them. And you're absolutely right. The rural emergency physician is the doc of all trades, and they do have to wear so many hats. But there are so many things that when working in rural settings, as I do, we have to sort of figure out on the fly. And so it's not something that requires going and doing a week-long course to do. Um, it really is a matter of, of reading through the guidelines. Like they just published the new standards of care. The summaries are available. It's, it's quite easy to do. Just requires a little bit of time. And that is something rural physicians especially are very short on. So that's, I think, probably for most where the issue is. They, they feel like they, they don't have the time to put into learning it. It really is not much of an investment in time. It, it's looking at the guidelines. Um, but there's a perception that it's harder than it is. But you're right, to make these patients safe, uh, it is a necessity. It is an absolute necessity for rural physicians to learn how to do this. My clinic that I work with, and I work with with several other, uh, with two other physicians, as well as sometimes we have physicians from the community coming in with us and we work with a wonderful NP. We're the only clinic in the province and we've got only about a four month wait list, which isn't too bad. But previously, our patients were having to go to Halifax or Moncton, and that is incredibly difficult for typically low-income rural people to do just to access this care. 
And this really is basic primary care. Do you have any stories of how much of an impact someone being able to access gender affirming care had? I mean, obviously you can't mention names, but can you give us an example of of how how it changed someone's life? I don't ever speak to specific patients, particularly because it's a fairly small group and anything I say could be identifying. Um, but speaking to general trends, people have a perception that it's that trans issues are a young people issue. It's really not. Many of our patients are middle-aged. They're, we have elderly patients who come to us who are finally feeling safe to embody who they are. And that is a really incredible thing to see. Someone who for for 60 years, perhaps, and I'm just using that as a ballpark, not speaking to a specific patient again, but who may have their entire life been living with this, and they're finally feeling that the time has come for them to be free. And that is an incredible thing to see. Additionally, it is really, really amazing to see, uh, for instance, younger adults who they have known this and they feel the time has come, that they can be free and they can embody who it is they always have been. This is not something that's new, that's a trend, that they're hopping on a bandwagon. They're coming to us and saying, this has been who I have been my whole life. uh, And I want you to help me bring that out. And it's a really incredible thing to see. I love doing my post-op appointments, especially when people are coming in, typically after top surgery. And they're they're bruised, they're covered in steri-strips. They still have open incision. Like they, they are, I'm pulling out drains, which is not a terribly comfortable procedure, but they're all smiles. It is always a happy visit um, because it's not just a literal weight is off their chest, but a figurative weight that's been holding them down their whole lives. And they breathe so much easier and they're so much happier and they stand straighter. And it is an incredible thing to see. It is such high value care. I love providing it. I'm going to turn to Kayla for a minute. Thank you for that, Dr. Dingwell. Um, The council where Kayla is, I know recently had a member of council talk about being uh, gay or trans as a, quote, lifestyle. And this was a big story in Ontario. And one of their council members that is running for mayor actually asked that or suggested, you know, made a motion uh, for folks to have diversity training and uh, it was turned down. There was no support for it. And, and so Kayla, I, I'm, I'm asking, you know, why, why are you running? I think I know, but. So a big reason that I decided to run was more to do with the fact that I felt that our council could use younger, more progressive voices. Our council was predominantly male. And I felt that women voices on council was also to our benefit. And then knowing that I was a member of the 2SLGBTQ community was another added bonus. At the time, when I was deciding to run, there was a conversation about whether or not I would want to be out publicly. Uh, It's one thing to be out to your friends and family. It's another thing entirely to put yourself out there publicly in the public space and letting your community know that you're queer. However, that decision kind of became something that I did want to uh, incorporate into my my platform, the fact that um, I'm a diverse candidate in multiple ways. And the, the events that took place at council in August really reaffirmed that for me. What's it like living in a rural community 
when it comes to safety, you mentioned that it's one thing coming out. I heard that part um, to your friends and being open, but but being public about it, that's a big safety issue. That's a big safety issue. And I don't think people in rural communities realize what a risk you're taking to be yourself like that. Can you explain that? One of the things that when I decided to run was, like I said, that decision of whether or not to be out publicly. Um, And at the time, it wasn't a safety consideration. It was more of a consideration of it didn't matter. It was a part of my identity and it was who I was. Um, And I didn't really care for other people's opinions on it, nor did I really want their commentary on it. That being said, once what the counselor had said uh, at that meeting, it became very clear that I felt a need to step up and say something. And at the time, I, I recognized that there was a risk doing that. I will say, though, since doing that, I've only met positive uh, comments from my community. They've been incredibly supportive. There have obviously been kind of like your traditional like internet trolls. My suspicion is they're not a part of my community. That <laughs> They are um, kind of just anonymous faces on the internet that it's easier in a way to kind of ignore because I know that they don't know who I am and that they're having kind of a gut reaction to something that it says more about them than it does about me. So I've just kind of framed it that way for myself. But yeah, since like I've been out canvassing and everyone that I've talked to has been incredibly positive, which just goes to reaffirm that these are the values of my community, that it's a small minority that have these hateful views and that that the community that raised me is still the community that that I that has the values that I hold. Um, so it's it's been it's been both kind of like a scary process, but also a very affirming uh, process as well to kind of meet my neighbors that maybe I didn't know that they had that support there, but uh, felt the need to be more vocal about their support that traditionally they haven't had. I'm in a small Ontario community, as I mentioned, and this year was our first Pride event. Tears in the eyes, kind of you know, seeing families together and lots of people come out and lots of support. But not all rural communities are like that. There's protesters, there's people that show up with signs at a drag story time at a library. That happened here as well. How do we, how do we change perceptions without losing who we are and, and, and losing our temper? I'm angry when I see that as an ally. And I don't know what to do except to stand up and be angry. Yeah. And it's, it's hard, right? So uh, before I decided to say anything, I needed to take a couple days to process because I was angry and I was hurt. But I've always kind of felt that meeting hate with anger doesn't really serve us at all. Um, that saying kind of before you go out on a mission to revenge, dig two graves, it's similar to that, right? That And it, I, I understand it can be frustrating being a member of the community and feeling um, rejected and feeling... Uh, having these comments kind of directed at you to not to kind of handle it with grace um, and just try to rise above it. It it can be, it can be hard. Um, But like I said, at the end of the day, I don't think it serves a purpose when I, I just, when I meet someone with hate, uh, with anger, Um, the best thing that I can do is try and uplift the voices of my community that are sharing my ideals. And that's a huge reason why I decided to run is that, I can be one of those voices to kind of uplift my community and show that this there is a place for us here and that we do have 
a role to play in our community that's more active. But yeah, like I said, it, it's hard. It's a, it's a, I think sometimes I will meet individuals who are older that are like agree with me completely that this is not the community that they were raised, that it doesn't matter who we love. It doesn't matter what our gender is, um, that we all have a role to play in our community. So that, that gives me hope that it's not a, a baked in kind of mentality. But I also know that sometimes you can't change someone's mind. And so you just have to kind of agree to disagree, even if that disagreement is about your right to exist within your community and find common ground elsewhere, because sometimes that serves a purpose for, uh, for, for making, uh, making bridges between divides. Dr. Dingwell, what kind of bigotry and intolerance have you seen in your role as a, an emergency physician and also gender affirming care? I mean, folks are aware that they, they, that is a specialty that you have. So what kind of things have you run up against that have been challenging? Unfortunately, on PEI, while PEI does tend towards towards being very polite, very kind, we have sort of that same subtle background simmering passive aggression that tends to pervade a lot of Canada. And there absolutely is racism, homophobia, and transphobia here. We actually had an incident, I believe, just prior to or during Pride Week, where a Pride flag in downtown Charlottetown, so our capital city, was burned. And there have been similar events to that over the course of years. So I I recall uh, while I was in high school, or not in high school, in uh, university, I believe it was the car of a distant acquaintance of mine had a slur written on it. And so these, these sorts of events do happen and far more frequently than what actually hits the news is, is the interpersonal moments where an individual who is visibly trans will encounter someone intentionally misgendering them or preventing them from getting into a washroom, um, where kids at school will be misgendered or dead named by their teachers those sorts of things. So those sorts of things absolutely do happen. I hear about them in the gender affirming care clinic. I, I do have a, my, my nearly 12 year old Charlie is two spirits. And thankfully with where we live has not encountered a single event of transphobia since he came out last year, but that is very much outside the norm. So um, I'm, currently in the market for a house and from hearing from my patients there are parts of the island where I will not buy a house because I don't want to be moving somewhere where my kid is unsafe. For the most part what I see is a lack of awareness which happens you can forgive ignorance Uh, it's a lot harder to forgive cruelty so uh, very frequently I will encounter people who misgender dead name a patient because their health card is still under their birth name and original gender marker. Um, and so that's how they appear in the chart. So when we're working with them in the emergency department, um, as soon as I get the chart of a trans patient, I'm writing their name and pronouns on it correctly <laughs> uh, and reminding the nurses and other physicians to use the correct name and pronouns. Um, but it's a bit of an uphill battle and there certainly will be some people who I have to remind fairly regularly and then I'll check the documentation and it's still incorrect. So those are our attitudes that are slow, difficult, and unfortunately at times impossible to change. And while with with social connections, you can kind of agree to disagree and just be like, I'm going to make sure trans people stay away from you. In a healthcare setting, it's a lot harder because 
uh, it's the emergency department. We are, we're, we're where people end up. We're where people come when everything else is falling apart. And so we absolutely must be a safe place for our patients. And so it's, it's um, facing those attitudes in what should be the ultimate place of safety is, uh, is a challenge. And I am, I am a bit picky about it and I do poke people about it and do a little bit of on the cuff, off the cuff education here and there. Uh, largely people have been very responsive to that. And typically when I do give a little bit of feedback and I try and do it very gently, like there's no sense coming down hard and, and alienating someone just, Hey, you know, it would be better for this patient if you use she, her and their correct name, which is whatever. Um, and for the most part, I've had very good feedback. It's very few people, thankfully, who I find to be challenging with respect to receiving that feedback. But I think my emergency department in particular is is especially cohesive as, as a workplace. So I think uh, the fact that regardless of what people may feel outside, they're at least able to help create that space. And, and I appreciate that because I'm sure there are people who who have their own feelings around trans individuals, but are uh, wise enough to keep that to themselves at work. So, Kayla, in your community, do you have any... Uh, physicians that are, I would say, open and and able to provide care uh, to trans folks or anyone who isn't cisgender, heterosexual? Fortunately for Woolwich, because we are surrounded by kind of larger cities like Guelph, Kitchener, Waterloo, Cambridge, um, there's a variety of care from different um, physicians in different hospitals. My sister is an ER nurse, and I know that her department, they wear things on their badges to signify that they are um, open and accepting to members of the 2SLG community. And things like small things like that can go a long way to making people feel comfortable, especially in a healthcare setting. So fortunately for us, because we kind of are surrounded by those larger kind of villages and towns, um, I think that the issue of getting care is a little bit mitigated. Uh, we also, Toronto is only 40 minutes away from us. So again, like the ability to get care from gender affirming doctors is maybe a bit easier, um, even just from the, the perspective of transit. We have like the Go Transit system that you can get onto um, and get to Toronto pretty quickly. So um, there is the benefit of that, I feel, for our community that because we have uh, these these towns closer to us and the universities are here, um, so there is a there is a diverse kind of uh, LGBT community within those villages and that it, it, it spills into Woolwich, which is to our benefit. So Kayla, I'm, I'm going to assume that you're going to get in. I'm going to assume that you are going to be, let, let's just say when, so I'm going to say when you get in, yes, when, when you are uh, voted in, it could be a challenge to influence the other members of your community. Cause as soon as I, I, you know, like as soon as you mentioned the, the badges and buttons in, you know, the hospital where your sister is, I thought I could see you wanting to implement those kind of things to make sure people feel safe in all of the community spaces that are, you know, a municipal municipal run. Right. And, and so how do you think, that'll go. How do you think the influence part of that will go? It depends, of course, on the other people that get in, but knowing the people that are running and their ages and their experience, um, how do you think that's going to go? 
a big thing I, I feel is that leadership is important, um, which is why I found the comments made by the incumbent counselor kind of so abhorrent was the fact that he was also in a leadership position and that that has an effect and it emboldens hate within our community. And I feel the same is true for diverse candidates, that when we're in positions of leadership, we can lead by example. Um, the one benefit is that diversity uh, training has been passed now by my local council. Uh, it was passed four to one, or five to one. Uh, I will leave it up to speculation on who that one counselor was that rejected it. Um, but we have passed diversity training now for our municipal staff. So I think that'll go a long way to just educating and um, encouraging staff to kind of take those moments within their day-to-day -day lives of recognizing privilege, but also uh, the little steps they can do that really help people feel welcome and included in their community. Dr. Dingwall, go ahead. When we were, we recently had a gathering for the release of the, um, the new WPATH, which is the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. Uh, they issued their new guidelines just, uh, just a couple weeks ago. And um, at that meeting, one of the things we had discussed was having pride flags up, having progress flags up. Um, and Lucky, who's the executive director of the PEI Transgender Network, um, spoke to that a bit and, and reminded us, like, the flag is just a symbol. It does not create the safe space. It's the work that creates the safe space. It's the putting the effort in to ensure that intolerant and harmful attitudes aren't tolerated, to ensure that when someone is showing up for, for access to services, they're being met with someone who has the knowledge and has the willingness to name them and gender them correctly uh, and ensure that they aren't using harmful terminology or outdated attitudes. So it's really, although the symbols are important, it's the work that means more, right? Because we can't create the illusion of a safe space while still having it be harmful because as Lucky had pointed out at that meeting, if you have someone from the 2SLGBT community who comes in and sees a rainbow flag and lets their guard down a little bit, you have a much greater possibility for harm than if they come in and they know they need to be on their guard. So it's absolutely true that doing the diversity education, having people be aware of how, where those moments in their day that they can find ways to demonstrate being uh, an accepting, affirming, positively helpful individual uh, are absolutely that that's the work it's not putting up the rainbow flags it's making sure the space is safe part of building that community is allies taking some of the shoulder shouldering a lot of that stepping in speaking up doing things rather than making it so exhausting for other people to have to stand up for themselves or be afraid even if it means you know, asking a stupid question, being really vulnerable, getting it wrong, you know, being called in. I think that people need to be less afraid of doing the wrong thing and actually just do something to be an ally. I see it in my own community. Like people want to, it's true. People want to fly the flag. They want to, you know, be at the pride event, but they don't know how to help. So I think education perhaps What's your suggestion for allies? Allies have a lot of power in what they can do to help the LGBT community. Simply by just being a voice and speaking out when they see hate take place in their community, acknowledging that it's maybe safer for them to do so than it is for members of the 2SLGBT community. So um, I heard from a lot of people 
that were straight, um, that weren't a member of the community speaking out against hate and saying it was inappropriate and it wasn't the community and it wasn't what reflected their values. And that was, that was great to see. Um, I would like to see that happen more in the day-to-day life of those individuals. Um, when something is egregious, it's much easier to speak up. It's maybe harder to do it when someone's being misgendered in a business meeting or when someone uh, is making hateful comments, kind of, that's a friend. Um, it, it can be hard, but I, it's it's a necessary thing that we all have to do is to call out hate when we see it. And if you are educated in LGBT matters and you are straight, like do, take on the role of educating your friends. It shouldn't just be a burden of the 2S LGBT community to educate people on their on their diversity, on their, their gender pronouns, whatever it may be. Um, like I said, the, there's a lot of avenues for you to find and educate yourself on issues that are important to the 2S LGB community. And it shouldn't just be a burden of queer folk to, to do that educating. No one should have to stand there and explain to someone else how not to hurt them. And while it is incredibly important to center the voices and to sit down, be quiet, and listen to the experiences and lives of our LGBTQ community. There is a lot of work. Like, I'm cis, and as much as possible, I try and give the floor to trans people if they wish to speak. But if someone's asking me, for instance, about my professional work, I'm, I'm happy to speak about what I do there. Um, I don't want to offload that to the handful of trans providers in this area because they're always, it's constant burden for them to have to talk about things that are are harmful to them. And that can be a very difficult thing. So it is the work of cis allies to help transgender uh, patients find space, find safe space in healthcare. Um, But it's also with the numbers game, right? There are far more straight cis people out there. uh, And they're far, far, far more likely to be able to change someone, or at least stop someone from behaving in a not okay way. For instance, when men call out other men on misogyny, they're far more likely to listen. And that's the same thing, right? Uh, it, it It is an unfortunate thing that when you're advocating for your own safety, people tend not to listen. And if someone external comes in and says, hey, you're behaving in a way that's not okay. Um, it just, they tend to listen a bit better when you've got backup. And it's, unfortunate that that's the case and people don't like being called out on their own behavior um but it is the reality and uh a friend of mine he always says uh, ken milne from the skeptic's guide to emergency medicine he says you can disagree without being disagreeable so there's certainly ways to approach these conversations where you're more likely to get some uptake well i think there's an intersectionality to marginalization right Uh, i mean it all oppressed people should have allies, white allies, stand up and say things. And it's time for all of us to do that. And it's, I believe, about education and about just what you said, learning, you know, looking, you can Google almost anything and find out what dead naming is, what gender affirming care is. You can find out so many things. Young people do that for themselves. That's how they find out who they really are. And um, I appreciate, I want to say, Kayla, that somebody from your community 
contacted me, a citizen, and told me about the horrible things that were being said uh, in Facebook pages about the LGBTQ2S plus community in your community. And they wanted to do something about it. So I just want you to know that's how I found out. It wasn't, she sent me the, the articles about your counselor. So there is someone in your community. There are people that care. And, yeah. and they thought perhaps that I, I could do something about it. So I want you to know that's, that's why we're having the conversation. There yeah. are people out there that care and that are doing things and are speaking out and trying to center the the voices that matter yeah and like deeply appreciative for that right um especially as sometimes being a member of the 2slgb community you can feel isolated and alone even though you know like i like i said i received um a lot of positive comments from people i also received a lot of messages about people's own experience both hate um for either their friends family or themselves within their community um which is both uh, it's like deeply upsetting um, to kind of have that outpouring of support coupled with uh, a, a recounting of of moments of hate. I'm in, I'm incredibly hopeful for the future, and I know that our younger generations, the ones that are just kind of coming up right behind me, are are fighters. Um, and I, I'm so appreciative of the work they do. I'm so appreciative of the work that uh, members of the 2S LGB community who are older than me have done. Um, I've heard from older 2S LGB people that's appreciated my statement simply because they're tired. They're tired of having to fight for their right to just live and exist in their communities. So um, anytime that allies can take some of that burden is deeply appreciated. Any final words, uh, Dr. Dingwell and then Kayla? Well, I, I'm in complete agreement with Kayla. I think it, it is, the burden is on allies to do the work um, and not to expect a cookie and a pat on the head for doing it. This is just being a decent human being um, and ensuring that the people around us are safe and respected as who they are. Uh, and that is the bare minimum of what we can accept from our communities. Um, I, I certainly have seen a shift, like I'm fairly young, but I've still seen a shift over the course of my own life um, and I'm in complete agreement that there's a lot of hope with this, with these younger generations. I think there's a lot of work yet to do. I think there is thankfully a willingness in that is growing to do that work. Uh, and I think I'm, I'm seeing some shift in rural attitudes, which I think is also helpful. And I think if we continue going on as we have and insisting on safety as a minimum, we can get some progress. Um, I, I have been hopeful and I will continue to be hopeful that I will see shifts in my own region over time. For myself, kind of one of the things that I that's really driven home to me is small towns doesn't necessarily mean small minds and that there is, this is the community that raised me and I was able to break through kind of traditional stereotypes. I was able to break through my privilege to situate myself, to be comfortable, to become out as queer, but also to uplift the voices of other kind of traditionally underrepresented voices. So I am very much a product of the community that raised me. So just because there is hate within my community doesn't mean that that's all my community is made of, that there are many of us living and working within our community 
every day to try and break through that hate and uplift voices that that traditionally haven't been heard. I think that's a great place to end. Thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Want to keep the conversation going? Subscribe to the Clearing a New Path newsletter. Drop me an email, follow the podcast on social media, and or you can leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm, and the music branding is by The Hankering Studio. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Thames Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga or neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to the studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie, Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. I will speak to many more people across Turtle Island this season, and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of colonialism, the TRC's calls to action, and to reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth and Creator for the opportunity for love and connection, and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time, 